It's Thursday, July 8th, 2010, and you've got Oz in your ears. Captain? General Petraeus, come in, sir. Thank uh, you. Did you have any trouble finding your way around Walter Reed? No, no, no. I know this hospital. Half the men I commanded are right here. Uh, oh, excuse me, sir. Sergeant, I thought I made it clear I can't be disturbed. Who? Yeah, I've seen the bald bastard on TV. What? No. No, tell him he can't have a piece of him. That was Dr. Phil. He wants to come over and join us. Huh. Who does he think I am, Britney Spears? Well, you're just about as famous now, General. Well. CNN is running your feigning spell alongside Marie Osmond's similar episode on Dancing with the Stars. I didn't faint. I was uh, taking what we call in Iraq a ten-click nap. Keeps you rested, on your toes. But nevertheless, sir, the Pentagon has requested that uh, after your uh, medical incident on yeah. Capitol Hill that you get a complete physical. Oh, uh, yeah. Just put this thermometer in your ear. Uh, it won't be necessary, Captain. I have a Vitestats implant. Uh, see, right here, you just touch the screen right there. Blood pressure, 120 over 64. Tip, 98.8. Estimated lifespan. Yeah, look at that. So, uh, good. We can mm. move right on to the psychological evaluation. Yeah, now, sure, sure, when sure. you appeared to faint in front of the Senate Armed Services Committee, was uh -huh. that in any way connected with the fact that you were being questioned by Senator John McCain? Uh, hell no. I can have that Navy brat for dinner. Well, perhaps it was the line of questioning then, <laughs> sir. I mean, you were being grilled about the timetable for U.S. troop withdrawal from Afghanistan. Uh-huh. Captain. When that shitstorm comes, I'm standing behind the president. Well, yes, sir. Right no. behind him. Well, let's just take a Completely look at the stop him. I'm action be video him. of the Senate proceedings, okay? Okay. Let's just take a look here. See? Watch, sir. As they get, begin uh -huh. to talk about the record number of American deaths, your shoulders start to slump. Well, there's big numbers. Yeah. Here, when, uh, when they bring up the brutality of the Taliban and the warlords, your head starts to droop. Now I've been awake for them. Now, notice how the blood seems to drain out of your face when they call the war unwinnable. Uh, I, uh, General! Uh, General! Wake up! Uh, nurse! Nurse, get me 40 cc's of fratricide stat! Can't face it. Oh, poor General Petraeus. Uh, you know, he's the guy that turned things around in Iraq. I wonder if that is, he turns it around so now we're seeing the backside of Al-Qaeda or whatever. And now, just like National Guardsmen who thought it was all over, he's being sent back for another, you know, another... Another trip. tour of duty. Another tour of duty. I yep. mean, just these generals. Man. You know, you know, I saw all those generals uh, on television. You know, every yeah. time they show up, of course, they're meeting the president or the congressman. I mean, it's a big deal. Do they walk around camp with all those medals on? All the ribbons. It's stacks of ribbons. And I, I seem to remember seeing that kind of thing on, was it Generalissimo Perón or one yeah, of those? Yeah, Franco and Perón yeah. and all those, all those tin pot generals. Actually, David, if you think about it, when you see them in combat or in the combat area, they, you can't even tell they're a general. They're in this camo. You can't see the stars, mm, right? No, no. Because almost because you know, somebody with a, with a scope could pick them sure, up, right? This is if sniper, they had a, sniper world. Well, let's right, face yeah. it. I mean, all that all that fruit salad over your heart when you're wearing those ribbons and stuff—that's a great target. Hey, you know? but but do the do the guys who work at the Department of Labor? Get get medals for a service? No, I mean, if you're out uh, looking for dangerous microbes for the CDC, do you get, like, uh, anthrax? Uh, Ebola. Oh, there's my Ebola ribbon no, right down here. No, yeah. no, you don't. What about going to Louisiana and cleaning up the oil spill? No, I'll don't you get, get an sick. oil spill medal? Hey, no one in the military... They are going to get an oil spill medal for going down there and laying those things on the water. You, you just wait and see. 
USA Today reports that coalition forces killed in Afghanistan topped 100 in June, the war's highest monthly toll and approaching some of the deadliest months in the Iraq War. The deaths of 102 service members included a record 59 Americans. Nine of the 46 nations in the U.S.-led coalition suffered fatalities, the most countries to lose troops since the conflict began nearly nine years ago. The increase in death stems at least partly from an expansion in military operations against the Taliban, according to the Pentagon, and comes days after President Obama named General David Petraeus as the war's new commander. So he's going into an increasingly bloody war field. Addressing the rise in fatalities, Petraeus, who directed the turnaround in the Iraq war, warned that violence could escalate as coalition forces attempted to push insurgents from former strongholds. His quote, my sense is that tough fighting will continue, he said at his Senate confirmation hearing after which he was approved in a 99-0 vote. It may get more intense in the next few months. Well, that 99-0 vote may look like a string of pearls right now, but it also makes a fine albatross necklace. Already, U.S. forces have stepped up to tax as a surge of 30,000 troops ordered by Obama builds in strength. The Pentagon says hundreds of Taliban militants have been killed or captured in battles in the eastern and southern portions of the country in recent weeks. Of course, what they're not telling us is how many non-Taliban have been killed. We're not sure, in fact, how many of those that were killed were Taliban, and it doesn't talk about how many Taliban came out of the poppy fields and the caves to replace them or were recruited. The June death toll was also the most soldiers lost in battle by NATO nations other than the United States. The United Kingdom, where liberal members of parliament have been demanding withdrawal of forces, lost 20 soldiers. Well, I think it's goodbye, Mr. Fish and Chips. The Brits got handed their heads once before in Afghanistan, and I don't think they're coming in for a matinee. British Defense Minister Liam Fox in Washington for talks with the U.S. military said European coalition members must remain until al-Qaeda is no longer a threat in Afghanistan. And Liam, how long will that be? Stephen Flanagan, an analyst at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, said death statistics alone are not a good measure of how the war is going. They're not an indicator of success, he says, or failure. It's not, he says, a war of attrition. Well, it sure feels like one, and I think we're on the wrong end of the attrition. Well, you know, if you play the buffoon in front of a national audience, people are going to start paying attention. It may get tough on you, Dave. I'm not talking about you. No, not about me. I was going to say, I'm I'm on YouTube, but not being a buffoon, I don't think. But minority leader John never met a tanning salon he doesn't love, or what I call him the Sultan of Suntan. John Bomer is too, is really getting the old smackdown because now that uh, he's beginning to go in front of the press and talk, uh, he's just causing himself a lot of trouble. Well, you know, they should never really do that. Yeah, no. talk. That's not a really good idea. Particularly for those not guys. them, not those. And all they got to say is one word: no. It's all no. Yeah, just leave it at that. That's it. People good will enough. understand your position, and they'll vote for you. Right. Democrats hammered the Ohio Republican, Mister Bomer, for his assertion that the Wall Street reform bill is. Killing an ant with a nuclear weapon. He's good, man. He's just full of metaphor. Wow. Yeah, well, wow. MSNBC host. T.S. Eliot hasn't got anything on that, no, right? No, no. T.S., man. Boy, yeah. okay. Yeah, MSNBC host John Scarborough aired private Republican complaints that Bomer is disengaged at best and a lazy bar denizen. They say he takes off early and changes from minority leader into majority drinker. Okay. 
Now, the Bomer Bash Fest started when the top staff researcher for uh, Nancy Pelosi distributed an email and a video of his comments. It's it's like Joe Barton, they said, you know. This is just perfect. They looked at it, and we knew it right away. And the, and the clip has gone into inboxes in in. in Washington and all over. I mean, this is this is YouTube heaven, man. You you know, you be a boor, right? You be a, you be a, a crazy guy. You're going to be all over the place. When I used to drink at places that I really was close to home and close to the capital, and That's I was right. around the people I really like. And and now what now, are you going to do? You got to drink, and I can't even drink in Bethesda now. You got to go all the way. Can't drink in Maryland, or I, Arlington, or uh, Crystal City. No, I hate. You got to go to Rehoboth Beach, where all those ponies are. It's such a drive. I mean, just for a little alcohol. And they're coming on me just because I said that Social Security retirement age should be raised to 70. I mean, they called me outrageous and frankly un-American for that. They called me an ant and said that I should be atom-bombed. That's who they told me. Well, yeah, they said that, you know, that that was crazy. The talking like that was just like I was using rhetoric and whatever that is instead of my good common sense. Naomi Klein writes from Ontario, Canada in the Huffington Post. She says, My city feels like a crime scene, and the criminals are all melting into the night, fleeing the scene. No, I'm not talking about the kids in black who smashed windows and burned cop cars. I'm talking about the heads of state who just smashed social safety nets and burned good jobs in the middle of a recession. Faced with the effects of a crisis created by the world's wealthiest and most privileged strata, they decided to stick the poorest and most vulnerable people in their countries with the bill. How else can we interpret the G20's final communique, which includes not even a measly tax on banks or financial transactions, yet instructs governments to slash their deficits in half by 2013? This is a huge and shocking cut, and we should be very clear who will pay the price. Students, who will see their public educations further deteriorate as their fees go up. Pensioners, who will lose hard-earned benefits. Public sector workers, whose jobs will be eliminated. And the list goes on. These types of cuts have already begun in many G20 countries, including Canada, and they are about to get a lot worse. For instance, reducing the projected 2010 deficit in the U.S. by half in the absence of sizable tax increases would mean a whopping $780 billion cut. Of course, it's anathema to raise taxes in America. Even the Warren Buffett and Bill Gates stand up and said, tax me, baby, tax me. Well, This is happening for a simple reason. When the G20 met in London in 2009 at the height of the financial crisis, personally, I think we're still there, the leaders failed to band together to regulate the financial sector so that this type of crisis would never happen again. All we got was empty rhetoric and an agreement to put trillions of dollars in public monies on the table to shore up the banks around the world. Yeah, we can save the banks, just don't save the people. Meanwhile... The U.S. government did little to keep people in their homes and jobs, so in addition to hemorrhaging public money to save the banks, the tax base collapsed, creating an entirely predictable debt and deficit crisis. Yes, we are in a crisis. You can see it as an economic crisis, which it is, but it's basically a spiritual crisis. We are suffering from zero-sum thinking. Hey, I give some of mine to him. 
it's going to be less for me, not more for everybody, because if we pump prime the economy, we'll create capital, we'll create jobs. No, no, no. It's all about me and not about you. I'll tell you what we ought to do. We ought to start by going out to the Hamptons there, you know, upside uh, Long Island and barging in on some of them hedge fund parties and just literally robbing the money from those sons of guns who are busy copulating with anorexic models. No, it's time we take that money and put it into the public coffer. It's time the common people became interested in the commonwealth. Well, Pete, what's going on in the 49th state? I mean, just right above Alaska there. We've got Arizona. Some new news? Oh, the the where the painted wingnut desert, yes, right? Yes, yes. Well, as part of their new immigration law, you know, they, they've released an hour-long training video to be shown to law enforcement officers to train them how not to engage in racial profiling. First chapter of the video was called Racial Profiling. Oh, well, good. And focuses on how to defend yourself against the inevitable charges of racial profiling from critics of the new law. They know it's coming, man. They can feel it coming. Yeah, yeah. Quote, frankly, he says, they're being frank now. Mm-hmm. Critics of this law believe that Arizona officers cannot be trusted with this kind of authority. Now, where, why, where would they think that? Where do they get that idea, right? They doubt your professionalism. They doubt your integrity. And they doubt your ethics, said Lyle Mann, the executive director of the Arizona Peace Officers Standards and Training Board. This doubt is unfair and unearned. It will soon be earned. Excuse Just me. Give they, enough time. They, aren't these the same police that have been around for the last hundred years, I'm sorry, it's yeah. earned. Come it's on, earned. They've earned. On. They should get badges. Earned Rac- it in L.A. Racial profiling. They've earned yeah. this. Florida, yeah. Texas. Come on, Arizona. Let's the go. new law requires law enforcement officers, as we know, to demand the immigration papers of anyone they have a reasonable suspicion is in the country illegal. The law only applies when officers stop someone suspected of breaking a different law, i.e., breaking laws like dressing like a Mexican. That'll do it. Yeah, yeah. Or yeah. lining up for work. Yeah, that'll do it. Or being brown at the wrong place at the wrong time. Mm-hmm, but, but that's mm-hmm. not related or dri- to be- driving an old car. Oh, yes, driving an old car, having too many children, or yes. at least appearing to or- have. Too many or children. too many children in the back of your car or truck. That's that'll right. get you in real big trouble. Well, speaking mm-hmm. any foreign language, but not speaking Swedish. You know, if Jan Janssen goes on, yeah, yeah, talking like Jan Janssen, they're not going to stop yeah, it. What if Jan Janssen goes out there and talks like, you know, somebody from Venezuela? Yeah. Why don't you want to hear, give me a Swede speaking like he's from Venezuela. That's going to be tough. It's a great challenge. I got that part of it. Yes, you do. You're okay. herman, herman like grapes. Okay. All right. So he says, this is the, guy, the policeman again. He's really weird. We're going to be accused of racial profiling no matter what we do. Okay. This is the official film. He says right? to, Tucson uh, Police uh, Chief Robert uh, Vialasenor. Yes, mm-hmm. you Vialasenor. are yeah. and will be right most of the time. The <laughs> best thing we can do is to document thoroughly where we develop our reasonable suspicion and probable cause, he says, and make sure those reasons would hold even if the suspect is not in a protected class. Excuse me, Captain, uh, as a burned out taillight, does that work for this? I'll have to find out if the person in that car is part of the protected class. Is he an average Joe citizen? If those factors still hold up, officer, then you're on firm ground. But the question is, what do we mean by a protective class? Who are they? What are they being protected from? Certainly not from the local police. No, it starts with them. Yeah, no, protected okay. class. All now right. Here's the right. problem, he says. Okay. 
racial profiling is a step on the slippery slope of career and public trust destruction. He says, if it is done, the reports then must be falsified to cover it up. Internal affairs statements might have to be fabricated. Testimony at trial perjured. Is this some sort of a how-to on covering up racial profiling? Of course, it's a bad idea. No, you know, stop. No no one likes stopping people, uh, for example, who look like employers on the street and asking them if they're hiring the undocumented. Well, man, do you remember when they used to stop you on the street for looking like a hippie, man? I mean, that happened to me all the time, man. I just, uh, you got long hair and you look like a hippie and have you got any identification? And I didn't have any identification because I was stoned at the time and I just didn't know at all. That was a long time ago. Poor Mexicans.
Paul Krugman is a Nobel laureate in economics and a columnist for the New York Times. I'm going to read this recent column in its entirety because it is, it's really seminal to what's going on. And like myself, he's decided to go for the D word. Recessions are common, he says. Depressions are rare. As far as I can tell, there are only two eras in our economic history that were widely described as depressions at the time. The years of deflation and instability that followed the panic of 1873 and the years of mass unemployment that followed the financial crisis of 1929 to 31. Neither the long depression of the 19th century nor the great depression of the 20th was an era of nonstop decline. On the contrary, both included periods when the economy grew. But these episodes of improvement were never enough to undo the damage from the initial slump and were followed by relapses. Sound familiar? We are now, I fear, says Krugman, in the early stages of a third depression. It will probably look more like the long depression than the much more severe Great Depression, but the cost to the world economy and, above all, to the millions of lives blighted by the absence of jobs will nevertheless be immense. And this third depression will be primarily a failure of policy. Around the world, most recently at the recent deeply discouraging G20 meeting, governments obsessed about inflation when the real threat is deflation, preaching the need for belt tightening when the real problem is inadequate spending. Ah, the ghost of John Maynard Keynes. In 2008 and 2009, it seemed as if we might have learned from history. Unlike their predecessors who raised interest rates in the face of financial crisis, the current leaders of the Federal Reserve and the European Central Bank slashed rates and moved to support credit markets. Unlike governments of the past who tried to balance budgets in the face of a plunging economy, today's governments allow deficits to rise. And that's good. And better policies help the world avoid complete collapse. The recession brought on by the financial crisis arguably ended last summer. But future historians will tell us that this wasn't the end of the Third Depression, just as the business upturn that began in 1933 wasn't the end of the Great Depression. After all, unemployment, especially long-term unemployment, remains at levels that would have been considered catastrophic not long ago and shows no sign of coming down rapidly. And both the United States and Europe are well on their way towards Japan-style deflationary traps. In the face of this grim picture, you might have expected policymakers to realize that they haven't yet done enough to promote recovery. But no. Over the last few months, there's been a stunning resurgence of hard money and balanced budget orthodoxy. I'll tell you why. Because the greedy bastards want to keep it all. They don't want to give it up. They've got theirs. And as far as they're concerned, the rest of us can go bugger. As far as rhetoric is concerned, the revival of the old-time religion is most evident in Europe, where officials seem to be getting their talking points from the collected speeches of Herbert Hoover, up to and including the claim that raising taxes and cutting spending will actually expand the economy by improving business confidence. Trickle down. What's that trickling down your economic future? As a practical matter, however, America isn't doing much better. The Fed seems aware of the deflationary risks, but what it proposes to do about these risks is, well, nothing. 
The Obama administration understands the dangers of premature fiscal austerity, but because Republicans and conservative Democrats in Congress won't authorize additional aid to state governments, that austerity is coming anyway, in the form of budget cuts at the state and local levels. Why the wrong term in policy? The hardliners often invoke the troubles facing Greece and other nations around the edges of Europe to justify their actions. And it's true that bond investors have turned on governments with intractable deficits, but there is no evidence that short-run fiscal austerity in the face of depressed economy reassures investors. On the contrary, Greece has agreed to harsh austerity only to find its risks spreading even wider. Ireland has imposed savage cuts in public spending only to be treated by the markets as a worse risk than Spain, which has been far more reluctant to take the hardliners' medicine. It's almost as if the financial markets understand what policymakers seemingly don't, that while long-term fiscal responsibility is important, slashing spending in the midst of a depression, which deepens that depression and paves the way for deflation, is actually self-defeating. So I don't think this is really about Greece or indeed about any realistic appreciation of the trade-offs between deficits and jobs. It is indeed the victory of an orthodoxy that has little to do with rational analysis, whose main tenet is that imposing suffering on other people is how you show leadership in tough times. And who will pay the price for this triumph of orthodoxy? The answer is tens of millions of unemployed workers, many of whom will go jobless for years, and some of whom will never work again, and most of whom will throw the GOP on their butts. On the phone with me is uh, David Bloom. He's an uh, energy expert, the author of Alcohol Can Be a Gas, and the founder of Bloom Distillation, and um, what he does, amongst other things, is bring ethanol to your local car. How good, good to have you on the phone, David. How you doing? I'm glad to be here. Yeah. Well, t- now I, you know, I grew up without any ethanol in my life, and yet I hear it's a, it's it's a it's a well. That's a real pity. Yeah, it is, isn't it? Isn't it? <laughs> put more put more corn in my genes. So it works. Uh, tell me how ethanol works as a substitute for oil, and then let me know why uh, it hasn't been popular from the get go. Okay. Well, from the get go, it has been popular. Alcohol was the first auto fuel before gasoline was ever invented. Really? I mean, it wasn't like there was a pool of gasoline sitting around and someone said, gosh, wish we had an engine that had run on that. Uh-huh. But uh, alcohol was first, and uh, the Model T uh, actually was an alcohol vehicle that could also run on gasoline. So mm-hmm. it was the world's first flex fuel vehicle. And of course, it's taken 100 years to come back around to a place now where our our cars are now being made on the assembly line to run on both alcohol and gasoline, but you almost never hear about it, even though we've been doing it since 94. And that's basically because alcohol uh, is not real popular with oil companies and therefore not popular with the people they hire to defend their interests, our Congress people. Let me ask you something. uh, I mean, I could just put pure ethanol in my tank in my car and it, it would run. It would be fine. Well, it, uh, you can at least go 50% with mm-hmm. a modern car, and many cars can go to 100% because fuel injection systems mm-hmm. are pretty smart, and they're run by a computer that can adjust for a wide variety of conditions. But uh, with a, uh, on the assembly line in Detroit, it's only $50 of different uh, materials, basically a little bit smarter computer, to make the difference between alcohol and gas, or you can buy a computer aftermarket to run on 100% alcohol. But today, you could go ahead and put in half a tank of alcohol, and your car will run just fine. 
Okay, now this doesn't apply to diesels, right? This is gasoline engines, right? Actually, alcohol can run diesel engines also. Uh, you know, the first diesel engines actually did run on combinations of alcohol and vegetable oil, and Dr. Diesel had uh, both versions. So we can actually run not only our cars, but our diesel uh, trucks. We can run our turbines that we use to make electricity, and we can even cook uh, and make uh, hot water with alcohol uh, as we demonstrate with fuel oil burners. Well, okay, so uh, ha- has there been an actual, I hate to use the word conspiracy because it's a dangerous word nowadays, has there been a concerted effort to keep al- uh, to keep ethanol off the market as a fuel substitute or, or, or flex uh, a fuel w- with, with oil? Well, i got to tell you, the oil companies are really good at uh, spreading money around and having allies. The first real conspiracy against alcohol fuel was done back in the uh, early 19-teens when uh, basically the oil companies uh, gave a little old ladies group $4 million and they went out and bought Congress and passed Prohibition. Everybody thought that was about drinking, but as far as uh, Rockefeller was concerned, it was all about getting rid of the competition, which you know I'll call it half the market at the time. So hmm. it's all very well documented that uh, the first alcohol conspiracy was... Uh, was between with uh, Rockefeller and the Women's Christian Temperance Movement to get rid of demon rum and therefore Rockefeller's competition. Yeah, as W.C. Fields would say, Lompoc. Yes, that's where the WCTU was was centered. Well, then there's two conspiracies because it was the uh, the people that got rid of hemp weren't worried about smoking weed; they're worried about it as a competition for paper. So yeah, you oh, got. Well, and- and for synthetic fiber, and if you take a look at it, the DuPonts were very involved in the hemp thing. This is the second time that they tried to take a product, demonize it as a drug, and then get it prohibited. Alcohol was first. The same play- playbook was used a couple of decades later with hemp. F- absolutely fascinating. So let me, uh, this, this is great. We're going to come back the next time we talk with you, David. We're going to talk about what is the, what's the carbon footprint of ethanol? You know, in other words, nothing is made without some use of resources, without, you know, with, without some sort of backlash. And we'll find out about that when we talk with David Bloom next time. Thanks a lot. Hello, dear friends. This is Reverend Bill Barnstormer of the First Second Amendment Church of Science Fiction. Well, dear friends, not so long ago, a believer came to me, and say thank you for that, and asked me, what age will I be in heaven? And I pondered that question and considered how the five justices of the apocalypse might decide. And it came down to me from that great court that there will be no old folks in heaven. No, sir, no, sir, and say thank you for that. And I told my parishioner, when you meet your forebears, friends, and relations in that fully loaded paradise to come, know that it's in the Constitution. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And that's only a sure thing if you look your best. So, as ye see yourself, so shall ye be. So when you get there, 
Don't ask the ladies about nipping and tucking or why all the men got the pecs they always wanted. It's their right as Americans in paradise. And say thank you, thank you for that. This is Reverend Bill Barnstormer saying, send from a free I'm afraid of bumper stickers. You got three choices, illegal aliens, real aliens, and arms control. Send for one or more today to P.O. Box 5 Against 4, Arroyo Mio, Arizona. Remember, your donation helps the fight. Yeah, people call economics the dismal science, and here are some dismal figures from our economy. Initial claims for unemployment benefits rose for the second time in three weeks to a seasonally adjusted 472,000, the highest level since March. Claims have remained stuck around 450,000 since the beginning of the year, and this has heightened concerns among economists that jobs remain scarce, even as the economy has begun to recover from the worst recession since the 1930s. We find the level and direction in jobless claims somewhat troubling, and the increase is likely to feed double-dip fears, says John Riding, an economist at RDQ Economics, in a note to his clients. Hey, Johnny, wake up. It's not double-dip ice cream time. It's the big D. It's not the double-dip D. It's the depression D. Get with it. Adding to the problems is that millions have been cut from their benefits and millions more stand to lose their federal benefits later this month if Congress fails to act. Well, they've already failed to act. More than 1.3 million laid-off workers won't get their unemployment benefits reinstated before lawmakers go on a week-long vacation for Independence Day. The numbers could reach 3.3 million by the end of this month if they don't pass the extension, the Labor Department said. Well, what if those 3.3 million people People marched on Washington. Economists say they may revise their growth forecast for the third quarter if the benefits are not extended. And they better well do that. They say people whose benefits are going to run out will simply not have the spending power necessary to help drive growth, said Dan Greenhouse, chief strategist at Miller Tabak. Yeah, ain't going to money. You ain't going to fuel nothing. In fact, you're going to spend the little money you have to fuel your house so you won't freeze to death. Greater layoffs for construction firms fueled the increase, a Labor Department analyst said. Home sales and construction slumped in May after the expiration of a popular homebuyer tax credit. Yeah, that was part of the bill that died before all those sons of guns went off for their holiday. Summer layoffs in many school districts also added to the total, he said. That's a simple sentence. But think how many kids and families will suffer. The unemployment rate is expected to edge up to 9.8% from 9.7% in May. That's the official rate, close to 10%. The unofficial rate, go out on the streets of Chicago, Toledo, South LA, Dallas, Atlanta. It ain't 9.8%. It's closer to 20. My portfolio is high I'm going on vacation Anywhere I wanna I put it on my card I could use a little sun And to see some ancient ruins The pyramids are calling 
Off to Egypt I will fly I go swimming in the big Egyptian river Bathing in the waters of the Nile The sun is shining down And everybody's happy Bathing in the waters of Dinah My job is so secure And my government is stable The weather's getting better A little warmer every year And now we've got free trade And everyone will prosper The locals here are happy I think I'll have another beer Let's go swimming now We're swimming in the big Egyptian river Bathing in the waters Of the Nile The sun is shining down And everybody's happy Bathing in the waters of denial I thought I heard a bomb It must be a celebration If anything was wrong They tell me on TV Sometimes I am amazed How perfect things are going I think I'll do some shopping and take a little time for me Everybody's doing it We're swimming in the big Egyptian river Stroke, breast stroke, side stroke, crawl Bathing in the waters of Dinah He's got it, he's got it all The sun's shining down And everybody's happy Happy, he's so happy, happy Bathing in the water Oh yeah, everybody's doing it We're swimming in the big Egyptian river Breaststroke, sidestroke, crawl Bathing in the water of Dinah He's got it, he's got it all The sun's shining down And everybody's happy Happy, he's so happy, happy Bathing in the water of Dinah We'll go bathing in the water Bathing in the waters of Dinah I'm on the phone with Mike Backus, who's down in Los Angeles. And Mike, amongst many other things, is on the board of directors of Cornerstone Research Collective, a state-of-the-art medical marijuana dispensary down there in L.A. How you doing, Mike? I'm well, Peter. How are you? Well, I'm very glad to hear that. I haven't seen you in a while, and I miss you, and I, I will be down into L.A. later in this month, and we can get together. But what I want to talk about, we're going to do a, a couple of interviews here. Um, first one, I want to find out about what's going on with the medical marijuana initiative there in California. We have one up here also in Washington. There's one in Oregon, but I think you guys are the bellwether. What's going on? What's it all about, and well, you know, what do you think is going to happen? 
Well, it's a it's a tax and regulate initiative. That's what they're calling it, and it's an attempt to really get the first um, full scale legalization bill passed um, by a popular referendum. Um, it started out with about forty nine percent of the uh, polled voters that intend to show up supporting it. Um, there's a little concern that it might lose a little speed uh, as we get closer to November. Yep. Um, that happens often with uh, these kind of initiatives. Um, however, uh, uh, Sheriff Lee Baca, who's the L.A. County Sheriff, uh, he came to a forum um, about 10 days ago, and he represented the anti-side yep. and uh, had a true Dr. Strangelove moment um, where he... Um, he got up and said that the reason that he was opposed to the legalization of marijuana is that he felt it polluted the divinity of the human mind. What? Yeah. I, I, I literally, it was one of those things, and what did it do to your bodily essences, pal? Exactly. Uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was pretty wild. And if that was the best shot from the antis uh, camp, um, I think this thing may be cruising to a win in the fall. Um, the, the big concern is whether or not um, it makes any difference. Because? And the reason, yeah. and the reason for that is, is that the um, United States is signatory to the single convention on narcotic drugs yep. that they signed initially in 1961, then renewed in 74 and 88. And that makes it illegal for any province or state of any signatory nation to legalize a Schedule I substance like marijuana. Right, right. And it is a so, Schedule One. You know, they made it just as dangerous as heroin, cocaine, belladonna, and strychnine, whatever it is. It's it's top. It's you know, it's, it's it's big league bad as far as they're concerned. Exactly. And so and so the thing is, is that what it may do is it may stop this kind of silly drug war on marijuana. Which uh, honestly, I mean, I don't think there's anyone um, who's not directly making money from the drug war who thinks that it's any kind of success. Um, so what I'm hoping is. If it doesn't really succeed in legalizing it, at least it'll stop people from being, you know, put in jail for it, uh, for a plant that we've been using for 5,000 years. Well, Mike, uh, Obama, a few months ago, told the DEA busting medical marijuana facilities is the bottom priority. He said that specifically. He said you've got a lot more important things to do. So the heat may not be on, particularly if, if the whole West Coast, uh, you know, legalizes marijuana on a state level. It's, it's definitely sending a huge message. I mean, we're a lot of Democratic electors. If you think about it, you know. Yeah, and, and I mean, I mean, I think that I mean, I I think that the the drug war is running out of steam. I mean, when you've got a county sheriff basically, you know, <laughs> talking about polluting the divinity of the human mind as being the primary argument for keeping marijuana illegal, and you know, the the problem with keeping marijuana illegal is a lot of people have tried marijuana, and and they know that it's a it's a it's a non toxic plant. Yeah. Um, that doesn't mean that it doesn't it shouldn't be used with intelligence and respect. But uh, in comparison to a lot of plants that our society has made legal, um, it's uh, it's pretty innocuous. So my hope is is that uh, the drug war is finally running out of speed. Well, you know, it, one of the things that that will make it less and less toxic is the ability to know that when you go into a medical marijuana dispensing clinic that you're getting the real thing and that it's pure. And in our next interview, we're going to talk about some of the signal work that you're doing to make that happen. Thank you, Mike Backus. We'll be back with you soon. Fly Maggot will spoil you. U.S. Maggot Airways announces their summer surprise spoiler. 
ground round trips. On Maggot, you'll get reaccommodated to places you never knew existed with nice folks way too big for their seats. And yours. Safe? Here's U.S. Maggot Senior Co-Pilot, Captain Hartsfield Jackson. Well, once I got a pack of mice up my twin carbs, so well, sir, the bad news was I crashed the plane, but the good news was the mice were dead. That's right. Cleanliness may be next to godliness, but we're all mortals here at U.S. Maggot. And remember, leave your luggage at home. You'll just be charged twice when we lose it. U.S. Maggot, you're more than rotten meat to us. Talking Points Memo tells us that an ideologically split Supreme Court ruled that a law school can legally deny recognition to a Christian student group that won't let gays join, with one justice saying that the First Amendment does not require a public university to validate or support the group's discriminatory practices. And I cheer them on. Yes, it is an ideologically split court. Must have been somebody like Kennedy probably, you know, tipped the balance. The court turned away an appeal from the Christian Legal Society, which sued to get funding and recognition from the University of California's Hastings School of the Law. The CLS requires that voting members sign a statement of faith and regards, quote, unrepentant participation in or advocacy of a sexually immoral lifestyle as being inconsistent with that faith. And these homophobic bigots are going to be lawyers? Shudder, shudder. But Hastings, which is in San Francisco, said no recognized campus groups may exclude people due to religious belief or sexual orientation. Yeah, it's called modern life. The court, on a 5-4 to four judgment, upheld the lower court ruling, saying the Christian group's First Amendment rights of association, free speech, and free exercise were not violated by the college's non-discrimination policy. And the decision is a large setback for the Christian Legal Society, which has chapters in universities nationwide and has won similar lawsuits in other courts. Quote, all college students, including religious students, should have the right to form groups around shared beliefs without being banished from campus, said Kim Colby, senior consul at the Christian Legal Society's Center for Law and Religious Freedom. Hey, Kim. You can form all the groups you want as long as you don't require the university to sponsor their discriminatory policies. Uh, Don't they get it? The spirit and genius of American law from the get-go has been to separate church and state to keep the haters at bay. If you want to conspire against sexually immoral lifestyles, go find your own dark hole off campus. That's how dumb we were. Christmas, Hanukkah, New Year's vacation, 1955, going into six, standing at the bar at Basin Street, sipping my Coca-Cola like it was a drink, talking to these two young cats from Bed-Stuy, Hines and Holmes, who sat in back of each other in class. They told me that they were told that they were dumb. I said, gee, I was told I was Dumb, too. I said, hey, let's be dumb together. Now, how dumb were we? Listening to jazz, the Max Roach, Clifford Brown Quintet, talking to each other. That's how dumb we were. CNN tells us that the experts expected home sales to drop once the home buyer tax credit lapsed at the end of April. But the depth of the decrease was shocking. 
According to the National Association of Realtors, pending home sales fell by a whopping 30% in May. Their index, which measures signed sales contracts, plunged to 77.6 from 110.9 in April. It's even off 15.9% from a year ago when the nation was barely emerging from the recession. Were we really emerging from the recession? I hadn't noticed. The pending home sales report is a disaster, says Mike Larson, a real estate analysis for Weiss Research. Sales fell off a cliff after the tax credit expired. Yeah, and remember, it was 41 cold-hearted senators just nixed an extension of that tax credit along with abandoning a million and a half unemployed. They left town for their 4th of July parties and left the unemployed to kind of figure it out on their own. Hard-hearted sons of bitches. It's the biggest monthly decline, this is housing contracts, ever. And the index is at its lowest level since NAR began tracking it in 2001. Lawrence Yun, NAR's chief economist, downplayed the damage a bit. He said, if jobs come back as expected, yeah, as expected, thanks there, Larry, the pace of home sales should pick up later this year, and such a sustainable level of activity, given very favorable afford- affordable ca- conditions, could happen. Hey, who's this guy's medical marijuana dealer? I'd like some of that rosy glasses weed for all those dark moods this structurally shattered economy has been inducing in me. Well, we're not creating jobs, continued Mike Larson. Remember, he's the housing analyst. The housing problems now are being driven by broad economic problems. The question is when or if the job market will ever bounce back. Bounce, bounce, bounce. Well, this is the end of one rotation of Oz, but just like Petraeus, we're going to be sent back from another. We're there, you know, every day. But before we leave the field of battle or whatever, let's tangulate us a bit. Yeah, this isn't one of their battle poems. You know, these Tang poets were, were really sad about the wars that were going on around them. But this is one called Indulgence. Mm. Absorbed in my wine, I didn't notice the twilight. My clothes were covered with fallen petals. Drunk, I rose up and trailed the moon in the quiet creek. Birds gone, people few. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that Lipo, he loved his uh, he loved his evening cup. Yeah, and we love our Radio Free Oz, and we love our Oz team that makes it all possible. I'm Peter Bergman, your host. My co-host, David Osman. Phil Fountain makes it beautiful. Tom Gadrillo keeps the website going. Chaz Glass keeps us financially fine. Dave Maloney does the wonderful recording. Bill McIntyre produces it. And Scott Wilde keeps us in touch with the world of social media. Catch you on the other side. <laughs>